0: Good morning church, it's good to be with you. If you have not already, I invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and and open to the passage our friend Marilyn just read for us, Judges chapter 7 verses 1 through 25. As Marilyn said, if you don't own a copy of God's Word or don't have one with you, we'd love to gift you with a copy. Uh, Feel free to take one on on the bar there, there's Gospel Transformation Bibles, Uh, it's our gift to you. We're continuing our study through the book of Judges, specifically the story about a judge named Gideon, and we're in the second chapter of three chapters that's devoted to Gideon. Last we've looked at Judges 6, verses 1 through 40, we saw that the cycle of Judges that we see throughout the book started as the people of Israel do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they're oppressed by these people from Midian, the Midianites. And they're not just oppressed, they're ravaged. I mean, they come in like locusts, they take everything, they leave no donkey, ox, crop. The people of Israel forced to hide in caves. They live in fear. And they cry out to God. And God sends a prophet in his grace to remind the Israelites of why they're in the situation that they're in. It's because they haven't obeyed the Lord. They haven't listened to his voice. They've turned and worshiped other gods. And then we're introduced to this guy named Gideon. And we are introduced to Gideon as he's threshing out wheat in a wine press. He's He's living in fear, and, and God comes to him and calls him and says, Greetings, O mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. And Gideon doubts that God is with him, that he is for the Israelites, that he would empower him. And Gideon asks for signs, and God, in fact, gives him three signs. He causes fire to come out of a rock and consume a sacrifice. He causes the ground around the fleece to be dry and the, the fleece to be wet, and vice versa. The, the ground is wet and the fleece is dry. Did I say that at the same time, or... Anyways, one time the fleece is dry, one time the fleece is wet, and God is demonstrating His proof, His affirmation that I'm with you, and I'm going to deliver the hands, your hand, to the Midianites. Uh, I'm going to use you to deliver my people, and it's with that background, that story, that affirmation that we move into the story in Judges seven. So from that affirmation, it says, Jerubal, that is Gideon. Jerubal was the name that was given to Gideon in Judges chapter six, which means let Baal contend for himself. And all the people with him rose early and they camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And this is an important verse, a verse that might be the most important in, in the passage. Judges seven, two. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me. To give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. A way of thinking about this hand is, is a way of thinking about might or power. God does not want the Israelites to think that by their own power, by their own strength, they can deliver themselves. He wants the the people to know that it is God who should be boasted in, it is God who deserves the glory, it is God who is going to do the work. The word boast in, can think about, you can think about it like this, to verbally show off, to talk about with satisfaction and delight in achievements or in possession or in abilities. And of course, I think God is, is giving this command and uh, telling Gideon that the people are too much, that you might be tempted to boast over yourself because he knows the heart of humanity. The heart of humanity is to boast in themselves. I came across an article this week that said this. I was talking about how um, oftentimes with most people, our own thoughts and our own experiences are our favorite topic of conversation. It said this. On average, people spend 60% of conversations talking about themselves. And the figure jumps to 80% when communicating via social media platforms, such as Twitter or Facebook. Why in the world, in a world full of ideas that we can discover, that can develop, and can discuss, do people spend the majority of their time talking about themselves? The article says, recent research suggests a simple explanation, because it feels good. God, knowing the human heart, knows that while it might feel good for human, humanity to boast in themselves, their own achievement, their own possessions, what is best for humanity... What they were intended to do, what leads to greatest flourishing, is actually for them to boast in the Lord, to find satisfaction in God. So God wants to display his glory to the people. This army is going to be too big. He's going to reduce it. He doesn't. He, he's essentially saying, I don't want these Israelites to think that I had nothing to do with this, That they can say, hey, look what we did. We freed our hand from the Midianites, and so he thins the herd. It reduces the amount of troops so that there can be no way that the Israelites would boast in themselves because of their size. So he says in verse 3, Proclaim in the ears of the people, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away. And from 32,000, immediately it's reduced to 10,000. The narrator says 22,000 are afraid and fearful. Talk about a strong army, right? Interestingly enough, this, the word in verse 1, the spring of Herod, Means the spring of trembling. Okay, it's, it's ironic. I think it's funny. It's describing the army of Gideon at this time, but the the army is reduced twenty two thousand people, and this is it's kind of common sense. Moses actually wrote a law addressing this in Deuteronomy twenty eight. He says, "The officers of the law shall speak to the people, saying, If there is any man who is fearful and faint hearted, let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own." This is actually a law. Like, if you're really afraid, you're not going to be good for the morale of the army. So, stay home. And immediately we see over two thirds of the army's gone. Verse four the people of Israel are still too many. That's what God tells Gideon. Okay, I know you lost two thirds of your army, Gideon. You had to say goodbye to two thirds of them, but there's still too many people. 10,000 is still too many. So let's reduce this even more. And he tells Gideon, go down to the spring and, and, and I'll show you who to keep and who not to keep. And it depends on how they're gonna drink from the spring. Right, if, they, if they bend down and they drink from the water like they're on their knees and they're drinking from their mouth, okay? Or, or if they come down and they take the water up in their hands and they lap, that's, that's another way. It says in, in verse six, the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. So there we see again, 9,700 people leave. Now there's some debate or speculation on, is there, was there a right way or was there some sort of significance behind you know, bending down or lapping? And some will say, well, you know, those who, who scoop the water and lap with their tongue, they're more alert, right? They're, they're not surrendering themselves to a posture of, of not being alert, But the narrator doesn't say one way is right or the other. It just frankly seems like uh, lapping was not as common. So that was a way to hurt out a lot of people. And now we're left with 300. And The Lord says to Gideon, verse 7, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. And give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of Israel back to his tent but retained the 300 men. And then uh, the camp of Midian was below in the valley. So let me remind you again the great significance of this reduction. 32,000 to 300. I'm not great at math, but I did the math and it's over a 99% reduction <laughs> in troops. And I'm not a historian either, but I don't think, I'm not a... I'm not trained in military skills, no, have, have no experience in the army. I would think that this would not be a good strategy. Right? Common sense would tell us that. Right? We can try to imagine ancient Babylon. You know, let's, they're trying to take over a stronghold. Some great military army is trying to take over another enemy or a force. And they'll, they're strategizing, okay, how do we take this enemy out? How do we you know, gather our troops? And we're strategic about the way that we are conquering our enemies. I would be hard-pressed to think that one of the generals or military leaders would stand up and say, I've got it. I've got our plan. Let's reduce our troops by 99%. That'll do it. That doesn't seem like a good battle strategy. Remember as well that the Midianites were described in Judges 6, verse 5, that they were like swarms of locusts. We don't even, we're not even given a number about how many they are. Swarms of locusts. And Gideon is supposed to go up with this army of 300. Verse 9, says, The same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. We see God's grace and compassion on Gideon. We've seen that Gideon is not the most uh, strong of heart. He is often doubting and skeptical and afraid. And God says to him, if you are afraid to go down, go down to your camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. God is so gracious and patient with Gideon. Instead of just demanding immediate action, he says, Gideon, if you're afraid, go down with your servant. I'm gonna give you now a fourth sign that I'm with you, that I'm going to deliver you. I think it's important that uh, that God is being gracious and patient with Gideon, that He's strengthening His faith in this way. But it's also important to to note that God sends Gideon with someone else, with another person. Right? I, I think it's showing that that reality of the need for strengthening our faith through community and through fellowship and going down together, obedience to God's mission as a community. But, anyways, says uh, when he goes down to the. The outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, the Midianites and the Malachites, all the people of the east were like a locust in abundance. Their camels were, were without number. And Gideon comes, behold, he hears a man telling a dream to his comrade. And this is what Gideon hears. He says, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley tumbled into the camp of Midian and came into the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. This is a peculiar dream. Or you imagine a cake of barley rolling down a hill and overturning a camp. And the comrade answers and interprets his dream to mean that this cake of barley rolling into the camp, this, this is Gideon. Gideon is representative of this cake of barley, which is... Interesting, like uh, barley was kind of poor man's food. It was the poorest kind of food. And we know that Gideon was not a very significant, important man. He comes from the weakest tribe. He's the weakest in his father's house. This is what Gideon's described as a cake of barley. He comes to the the camp and it says that that he turned it upside down. But the way of thinking about that is he's overturned. This cake of barley is coming in, overturning the camp. And this Midianite interprets this being Gideon. And it's interesting when you think about this, that here you have Gideon, who has now received four signs from God, direct revelation from God, doubting. And yet this Midianite, this pagan Midianite gets it, gets it. Like, yeah, Midian is going to deliver to Gideon. He's going to take it over and we're we're hosed. Verse 15, as Gideon hears the telling of this dream, he hears the interpretation, he worships, his strength, his, his faith is bolstered, he's in stre- he's in strengthened, that's not a word, <laughs> strengthened, it's just strengthened, he's strengthened, he returns to the camp of Israel and says, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand, and he divides the camp, he divided the 300 men into three companies, he put trumpets into their hands of all of them, and emptied jars with torches inside the jars, And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpet. Also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Now, according to Jewish tradition, there were three night watches. So the middle watch would be around midnight. So it would have been late. Two-thirds of the army probably would have been asleep as another third was out uh, watching the camp and keeping watch. They had just set the watch. And as they do this, it says, the end of verse 19, they blow the trumpets and they smashed the jars that were in their hands. And the three companies blew their trumpets and broke their jars. They held in their left hand their torches and in their right hand their trumpets to blow and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled and they blew the 300 trumpets. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So although the Israelites, and they cry out, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. They're actually not using swords. God is the one who is using the sword. But you can think about how disorienting this might be for the Midianites. Okay, it's dark because they have the, the torches in their jars. They've got trumpets. And if you've been in a room where there's one trumpet playing, you can imagine 300 trumpets would make you go crazy. <laughs> but they smash the jars. All of a sudden, there's a bright light. It appears that there might be a lot more troops than there actually are. They're shouting. They're blowing their trumpets. And this disorients and confuses the Midianites. And God sets the sword against themselves. So they start killing each other. And notice what the Israelites are doing. They're blowing trumpets and they're shouting. Are they fighting? Are they going throughout the camp with their swords? It is the Lord who is delivering the Israelites. The Lord is the one who is bringing victory. And in verse 23 and 24, they pursue Midian Gideon sends messengers all throughout the hill country of Ephraim and he says, come down against Midian and let's capture it. It says, they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. They killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And, and that ends our section in Judges 7 about this battle. And now as we've worked through the text, we've looked at some historical context, we've brought out key phrases and ideas, it's time for us to answer those questions that we've been seeking to answer every week through our study through Judges. The the questions that are hopefully helping us grow as students of God's word and helping us uh, make sense of what we're seeing and understanding here in the book of Judges. And the first question is this, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? Right, so from this story, Judges 7, 1 through 25, what's the, what's the point? What's the story? What is God showing us about himself and his relationship with his people? All right. Then from this question, we're going to seek to, how does this the point of this story fit into the larger point of the Bible, the grand narrative, the meta-narrative of the scriptures? And then from that, what is this story calling us to do? So question number one, What is this, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? And I think there's Many things that you could say about this passage, but the one that I want to focus on this morning comes, uh, that I think is the biggest message, the biggest point that we saw all the way back from Judges 7-2, which is God is passionate about displaying, preserving, and showing his glory. God is about his glory, boasting in his strength, his power, his honor. He is passionate about his glory. And a way of thinking about glory is his beauty, his his perfections, his manifold expressions of his characteristics and who he is. The prophet Isaiah uh, speaks on behalf of God and and says, I will not give my glory to any other. God is jealous and zealous about his glory. He is the one who is to be supremely glorified. He is the one who is supremely glorious. He deserves all fame, all recognition, all honor, all glory. He will not give his glory to others. He created all things for his glory. He saved and shows his people for his glory. He rescues his people for his glory. He delivers them for his glory. This is what we see in this story. God is about and passionate about his glory. He wanted to make it clear and obvious to the people of Israel. Didn't want them to have any room to boast in their own glory, their own strength, their own might, their own honor. And God displays his glory in Judges 7 by graciously choosing what is seemingly insignificant, by using what is weak to humble the proud, to shame the strong. What we see in this story is that Gideon's 300 men do not win over this great swarm of Midianites because they're greater in number. They don't win because they have superior weapons, Right? A trumpet and a torch is not going to get you very far in a battle. <laughs> Normally. <laughs> the Israelites don't win because they have superior technology or war machines. They win because it's the Lord who is fighting for them. The Lord who sets the swords against the enemy. The Lord who brings victory. God shows grace to his people by using the weak to display his glory. I think it's important to keep in mind back what the narrator told us in Judges 3. That God left nations around the nation of Israel to test them and to show them war. Remember this back in Judges 3? God says this and the narrator tells us this. These are the nations that the Lord test left excuse me, to test Israel by them. That is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. Judges 3.2, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And again, what what we see here is is not God wants his people to grow in being aggressive, not grow in, in learning how to fight better or have greater military technology or weapons. It is because he wants his people to see God fight, God bring the victory, God get the glory. This isn't the first time that the the enemy or the, the battle plan is let's give this one to the band. Right? Remember the story of Jericho in Joshua. Right? The the whole strategy is we're gonna walk around the city and blow our trumpets. Okay, you know, military leaders, you guys hang back for this one. We're gonna send the band in. Right? God, when he's showing the Israelites war, he's giving them an opportunity to see his glory. He's giving them an opportunity, it's his grace to call them to worship him, to see him so clearly that they would worship God and thank him for what he has done. It is his act of grace that he does this. God delivers, saves, act by grace for his glory. That's the message of the story. And this is a message that, a truth that's proclaimed throughout the story. We see this all throughout the history of redemption. God chooses what is weak and what is small, what is low, what is despised, what is foolish, that God may be glorified, that humanity may not boast in themselves. God chose the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy tells us not because they were better than other nations, not because they were more in number than other nations. God chose Israel because, simply because he loved them. And he was showing his covenant faithfulness towards his people. God chose Gideon, who was the weakest tribe of Israel, the least in his father's house, that God may be glorified in his life. Later, God chooses a king, David, who was the least in the house of Jesse. God does this all throughout the scriptures. and In fact, in the greatest act of grace, God sends his only son into the world to be the, the final, the great, the ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer. And God's reduction plan of Gideon's army in this story from 32,000 to 300 foreshadows, it points to the fact that God would bring salvation and deliverance through one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who entered the world as a baby. Talk about weak and insignificant. Talk about seemingly powerless. Talk about outnumbered. One baby against sin and Satan and death. Not only that, but Jesus is born to insignificant parents. A teenage girl. When Jesus is born, there's not even room in the inn. He's born in a feeding trough with animals. Jesus grows up in a town of nobodies called Nazareth. Nazareth. When people start hearing about Jesus and he grows up and he's performing miracles and doing ministry, they'll ask, Can anything good come of Nazareth? Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself. He became a servant, gave his life to others. He hung out with the lowly, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes. He was homeless. Yes, yeah, through Jesus, that was God's foreordained plan, a person who would bring deliverance to the world. Jesus would later grow up and, and be falsely tried and accused. An innocent man who was condemned to death, who was mocked and tortured and ridiculed, who was eventually stripped naked and nailed to a wooden cross where he was publicly humiliated. And this is the Savior of the world foolishness in his seemingly greatest moment of shame and humiliation as he's on the cross this is in fact though his greatest victory this is our victory because on the cross jesus takes what we deserved all the ways that we have preferred other things or other people all the way that we have glorified ourselves glorified other things the things that god ultimately deserves and is owed And to fail to glorify and honor an infinitely glorious being is worthy of infinite punishment. Jesus takes the the wrath and the anger that should have been poured out on us. All of us who are consumed in ourselves, consumed with glorifying ourselves, consumed by boasting in our own strength. Jesus took that upon himself, upon the cross. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus so that we might be forgiven. And on the cross, Jesus not only takes the punishment, the wages of our wrong, our sin, but he gives us, he imputes his righteousness to us, that we are made righteous in his sight, that we can be made clean. Not only after his death, but he's buried. And after three days, though, Jesus raises from the grave, he proves in this moment that he is victorious over sin, Satan, and death. That death does not have the final word. That his seemingly greatest loss was his victory. That Jesus is who he said he was. And just like in the story of Judges 7, as the soldiers of Gideon watch as God works and saves his people, we too get to watch and rest in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have nothing to do with our salvation. We Gaze upon God and what he has done, already accomplished in Jesus Christ on the cross. Humanity now can be saved by trusting in God and the finished work of Jesus. Just as the Israelites were saved by grace, we are saved by grace alone. Just as God's people in this story were saved by God's grace for his glory, we are saved by God's grace for his glory. So in light of this, In light of what the story is showing us and how it fits into the gospel story about Jesus, we we must ask ourselves, what is this calling us to do? Let's let's answer the third question we see in our handout. What admonition or exhortation does this story offer? I think in light of this story, in light of realizing before the Lord that God saved the Israelites by grace for glory, he saved us by grace for glory, that that should lead to great humility. Just as the Israelites saw clearly as God reduced the troops, he was saving them by grace. We must realize and continually remember the same reality. We are saved by grace. We are loved by grace. We are held by grace. We live by grace. Just like God does not want the people to boast in themselves, we want to have the same heart. We don't want to boast in ourselves, and we don't want to become prideful. We want to kill our pride and not boast on ourselves. We want to boast in Christ and what he has done. I think the words that Paul writes to the church in Corinth are especially helpful here in 1 Corinthians 1.27. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we are saved by grace alone, what do we have to boast in? anything in ourselves, nothing but the grace of God, nothing but what Christ has done. We want to be mindful of this and mindful of the danger and the, the tendency of our own hearts. How We are so quick to wander, so quick to become prideful, so quick to uh, have our hearts bent inward upon themselves. Scripture warns us of our own pride. Proverbs twenty nine twenty three: one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Two guys that were really close with our Lord Jesus, Peter and James, said it like this: God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus Himself said this: Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Did you notice at the end of Judges seven twenty five that the enemies of Israel, the enemies of Gideon, are killed at a wine press? It's interesting when you think about where we see Gideon and where he's called. He's called at a wine press. He's called in fear, in in hiding, maybe in shame. See this reality in the story itself. God humbles the proud, gives grace to the humble. So in light of this story, to, to humble ourselves, to seek humility before the Lord, we want to continually keep in mind realize we are saved by God's grace. We want to be active and intentional in killing our pride. Just like if a gardener is not intentional in pulling weeds in the garden, they're going to continually grow up and cause havoc in the garden, we must be like that diligent gardener and root up and rip out the pride in our own hearts. Because before you know it, it will cloud the fruit, it will strangle what is good, And we will be deceived and hardened and unfruitful. I think pride is the most deadly sin. And pride is often so deadly because we don't realize how much pride we have. Right? Even now we might be tempted to think about all the people that we know in our life that are prideful. And how much they might need to hear the sermon. (laughs) Without looking at our own hearts. Pride is overt. Sometimes and often it might rear its ugly head, but oftentimes it, it goes seemingly unnoticed in the depths of our hearts. It's deceiving, it's subtle. We can believe we're not that prideful when all the while we are full of pride. We can be prideful by thinking we're not really that prideful. <laughs> our pride can, can come out in, in multiple different ways in our quickness to complain. Or we're, we're essentially believing and saying that I deserve better, I'm entitled to more. Our pride can come out in, in our quickness to correct and criticize. Our pride, our pride can come out in our desire for perfection and wanting to be a perfectionist. Our pride can come out in our selfishness and, and lack of wanting to reach out to others. We're comfortable with the people that we like, that like us. Our pride can come out in our desire to argue. We want to have the last word. We want to be right. And the list can go on and on. Right? There's no exhaustive list for Pride. Right, We might be prideful and thinking, well, I wasn't even listed in that list, so I'm good. There's not a, a correct formula to find... I mean, we're, the, the point is, what I'm trying to make is we are all prideful. And we are, if, we're, if we're not careful, we will be blinded and deceived by our own pride. So we have a problem. Now we have to deal with it. So let's c- continue to seek to kill our pride. To examine our hearts, to have others examine our hearts, and to lay those before the Lord, and seek to grow in humility, and as we do that, I think there's four practices that we can do to kill pride to grow in humility they're not simple if you hear me preach the last two years you 'll think, here we go again, Daniel, but it 's about the simple basics of making this a part of our life, of having this be increasingly part of our life here's some four practical ways we can kill our pride and grow in humility number one. We sing regularly of God's grace and we proclaim regularly of his salvation. Okay, frankly, we boast in God. We boast in the Lord, right? If we are saved by grace alone, we have nothing to boast in. We we can boast in Christ, what he has done for us. So to avoid boasting in ourselves, we want to talk and or talk about ourselves. We want to, we don't want to show ourselves off. We don't want to try to, you know, turn every conversation back to ourselves, We want to boast in Christ. We want to listen to others. We want to grow as listeners, people who believe that the other person has something more important to say than I have. So we're not going to try to interrupt them and and interrupt our thoughts into what they are saying. The more we realize that we are saved by sheer grace, the more we let that truth saturate our hearts, the more humble we will become, the more we understand and realize that there is nothing special or great in us, and that will lead to great boasting in God singing of what he has done, showing off God's grace. This sounds like daily praise and thanking God for his grace. This sounds like growing in thankfulness in our prayers instead of coming before God and having a honey-do list. Just, God, do all these things, amen. How much do we regularly thank God for all that he has and all that he has done? and We praise him for everything he has done in Christ. Number two, we seek to be honest and transparent and intentional in sharing our weaknesses. The gospel leads to great humility. It doesn't lead to self-deprecation. Is that the right word? Mm -hmm. Self-loathing. But we want to be honest about our weaknesses and our struggles. We want to make much of God's grace by showing we're not special, (laughs) we're not great. We don't have it all figured out. We don't have it all together. We want to show that we're not so set upon ourselves and our greatness and our need for achievement and success like those who might not have experienced the grace of God are. But humanity is so set upon themselves and showing off accomplishment that we've built monuments even to, to show this off. Regardless of culture and history, this is what we do. Whether it's the great pyramids in Egypt, whether it's the the great temples in south america whether it's the great wall in china whether it's the empire state building in new york whether it's the eiffel tower in france we're boasting about our achievement right what did when we go to the moon even what did neil armstrong say one small step for man one giant leap for mankind right here's what neil armstrong didn't say thank you god for it giving me a mind to think and plan and strategize and people that we can make this endeavor. We can seek to obey and live out the command that you gave us to subdue the creation. Thank you, God, for your grace. You've given us this opportunity. This is for you. We give glory and honor to you, God. (laughs) We boast upon ourselves and we boast in ourselves. I came across an article this week in Forbes magazine that said this, let's face it. You're going to be happier and more engaged when you showcase your strengths compared to your struggling through your less proficient talents. This is the message of our world and our culture. Don't talk about your weaknesses. Talk about your strengths. Let's face it. That's better for you. You're happier. You look better. It will go better for you. What is the message of the gospel? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As Christians, we don't want to give ourselves or others the illusion that we are great. We do this by talking about our struggles. We confess our sins. We show others that we don't have it all together. We make a mess of things. Practically, this looks like sharing your sins regularly and transparently with people in your gospel community. I think it looks like more or sounds like more than, than just, well, I'm sinful, I've got a lot of sins. I need to be better. Really sinned a lot this week. I need to be a better husband, a spouse. You know, I'm just such a sinner. Looks like being specific. Pray for me. This last week I looked at pornography. Pray for me. Two days ago I snapped at my wife. We, We haven't reconciled. Pray for me, I've been loving television more than I love God's word. Pray for me, my heart does not want to be in God's word and be with his people. Looks like having a friend or two that you are completely open and vulnerable with, that knows your past struggles, your guilt, your shame, your fear, knows what you're currently going through. Third practice, to grow in humility, to kill our pride as we become increasingly people of prayer. I firmly believe that our prayer life is a litmus test to our spiritual health. What I mean by that is the amount of time that we pray reveals where our spiritual health and development is. Because what a lack of prayer shows is great pride, is it not? I can do things on my own strength. I don't need to depend on someone else. A lack of prayer reveals the pride in our heart. I can manage myself without God. When I say growing as a person of prayer, I mean a couple of things by this. Number one, we want to grow as that disciplined set time. Whether it's in the morning that Jesus talks about, we're going into our prayer closets, we're having that alone time with God before the Father. This might be on your knees, this might be on your face, this might be standing in the shower, whatever this looks like. But the Bible also refers to that there is a set time, a discipline, but there is a, a all of life aspect to prayer. A, a, there are commands even to pray without ceasing, pray continually, which, which that means prayer is a continual listening and asking God for help all throughout your day. It's like you're processing your thoughts and you're laying that before the Father. You're growing in intentionality in this. It looks like listening to the Spirit and asking for God's help. It looks like uh, waiting and asking for the Spirit's guidance before you act or before you speak. It looks like taking that, those internal conversations that you have with yourself. That If we're honest, we have those in our heads. And taking those before God. Thinking through God's word and how the Spirit might lead us to respond or answer in this way. Now, I think we could probably have a 10, 20, 30, 40-week series on prayer. And I realize that I can't really do justice to prayer in this moment. Uh, But I would love for you to answer any questions on how to pray. Teach me how to pray. What does this look like afterwards? I'm sure Will and Nathan would love to do the same with you. Uh, Finally, so we want to... Saying we want to boast in the Lord, we want to be honest about our weaknesses, we want to become people of prayer, and we want to grow in community, surrounding ourselves with gospel community. If we believe, or I believe, I hope you would believe as well, that community is the context for change, that we don't really know ourselves apart from community, we realize that there's not really a perfect formula for identifying pride. You know, you, you come in and I ask you these thresh, three questions I say, well, this is what you're prideful in and go work on this. Pride is oftentimes revealed and displayed in community. Oftentimes our blind spots to our own pride are revealed by others because we are deceived or blinded by them. And community reveals our pride and it's being around others who know us and we want to know that this happens. I hope that we are not prideful and even thinking that we don't need community. That we have it on our own. We can isolate ourselves and and be totally fine because it's in community that you you can see your pride and you can begin to work on it with the help of others who are just as prideful and working on their pride. So I pray that in light of this story that we see here that God is desiring and wanting the glory. He wants the glory in Judges 7. He wants the glory in your life. We're called in everything to glorify God. That we would seek to live this out. By God's grace, we would worship God and we would grow in these, these four ways. We would be people who increasingly sing to God and praise him for what he has done. We don't boast on ourselves. We know there's nothing great about us. We talk about Jesus and how good and loving he is for us, how great he is, how majestic and wonderful he is, how supreme he is. We talk about our weaknesses openly. We don't wanna give people the illusion that we're great, we're not. Jesus is great. We pray. We get on our knees, and in the quiet, we ask God for help. We pray in all of life, and we immerse ourselves, we submerge ourselves in a gospel community who will love us and help us grow in Christ by identifying pride and helping us grow in humility. Amen? Let's pray.